Welcome to Gridlock Break, a no-labels podcast featuring one-hour conversations with elected officials and thought leaders from across the political spectrum. Tune in weekly to hear insightful and nonpartisan perspectives on how America can solve our toughest problems. Today, we'll hear from Dr. Andrew von Eschenbach, president of Samaritan Health Initiatives, Inc., and an adjunct professor at University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. He was formerly the commissioner of the United States Food and Drug Administration from 2006 to 2009. Today, he will discuss COVID-19 vaccines, two of which are nearing FDA approval. Let's listen in. Thank you, Nancy. Uh, Good afternoon. I'm pleased that you're all able to uh, join us. We're uh, delighted to have Dr. Andrew von Eschenbach with us today. Dr. Von Eschenbach serves as a senior advisor to the Bipartisan Policy Center's Health Innovation Initiative. He also serves as president of Samaritan uh, Health Initiatives and is an adjunct professor at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. From 2006 to 2009, Dr. Von Eschenbach served as FDA commissioner, where he worked to improve the regulatory pathway for drugs and medical devices and dramatically increased the overall FDA resources uh, and strengthened its mission to protect and promote uh, public health. Um, Many of you will recall that last week we heard from former FDA Commissioner Margaret Hamburg on the COVID-19 vaccine state of play, and I'm sure we're all eager this afternoon to hear from Dr. Von Eschenbach and his perspectives on the current state of the virus and the timing of approval and um, all things vaccines, Dr. Von Eschenbach. I'll now turn it over to him for his remarks, and then afterward, we'll open the floor for questions. So, Dr. Von Eschenbach, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Tim, for that very nice uh, introduction. And Nancy, thank you for the invitation to join in what is uh, an amazing contribution that you all are making, and I'm very honored uh, to be able to spend some time with you. I, I unfortunately don't have the benefit of knowing what Peggy discussed with you uh, a week ago. So I hope that some of the things that I'm going to share with you are not terribly uh, repetitious, but I did want to perhaps approach the issue of um, this opportunity with regard to the vaccines and the concerns that many people have as to, since it's been so rapid a process, does that mean by definition it's reckless and why should we and how could we trust uh, the vaccines that are going to be made available? And then also uh, talk a little bit about the FDA process and uh, finally some issues with regard to the challenges with regard to distribution. And I hope that sets the stage for what can be a lively Q&A. And in the Q&A, maybe I can be more responsive to some of the things that maybe Peggy didn't address that you could bring out. So we'll kind of be uh, a little free-flowing if if that's okay with you. I think the issue with regard to why should we trust these vaccines, given the rapidity with which we seemingly have accomplished in six to nine months what traditionally normally was thought of to take six to 10 years. And I think the first part of that story is the fact that it's not a six to nine month story. It's actually a 15 year story. And it goes back to 2005 when we were faced with the threat of a pandemic uh, due to H5N1 uh, bird flu, uh, avian influenza. And at that time, we were relatively uh, completely unprepared uh, for anything like a a pandemic, especially one that was uh, avian-derived or avian influenza. And part of the reason for that is up to that point in time, uh, we were totally dependent upon egg-based technologies for vaccine development. Pretty uh, primitive, if you might, but it was the traditional way we made vaccines by inoculating eggs. Um, We also, at that time, only had two licensed FDA-approved vaccine manufacturers in the United States. And so we rapidly had to gear up for that. Uh, President Bush, with his administration, uh, 
and Congress invested literally billions of dollars to rapidly accelerate uh, cell-based technologies so that we would not be dependent on the traditional egg-based. And frankly, as FDA commissioner at the time, I was somewhat um, petrified by virtue of the fact that we were going to be dealing with bird flu. And uh, my concern was it would kill off all the chickens and we wouldn't have any eggs to make human vaccines. We were able to license um, more vaccine developers by uh, taking a very collaborative approach uh, between the FDA, the regulator, and the developers. And of course, over the course of the last 15 years, uh, building on the foundation that President Bush put in place, President Obama, and we've continued on with this tremendous investment in vaccine technology such that we've moved from egg-based to cell-based technologies. And now with regard to these vaccines, we realize that we have a portfolio of options. They range from some of the traditional methodologies uh, where we inoculate um, viruses uh, or uh, deactivate uh, viruses uh, and produce a opportunity for vaccine response to the proteins that those viruses express, or we take an innocuous virus and we add to it the kind of protein we want to be able to attack. So in this case, taking a simple cold virus and putting in the protein for the spike protein that's unique to this SARS-CoV-2 such that the body doesn't get sick, but it does in fact develop an immunity to the protein that sits on SARS-CoV-2. And then finally, the, the two vaccines that are most at the forefront that you've heard from Moderna and Pfizer is a situation in which you actually inoculate into the body cells the, the messenger RNA that's responsible for producing the protein that we want to be able to develop an immune response against. So why should we be more optimistic about the six to nine months? Because it's built on a tremendous uh, foundation and ex extensive progress that's occurred over the past 15 years in science and technology. So the, the basis upon which these uh, vaccines have been developed is extraordinarily sound. It's been well tried, proven, and tested in other settings um, as things have been worked on for Ebola, et cetera. The second reason why I believe we should be trustworthy is that this process, although it's been rapid, has really undergone a great deal of vigor. And the rigor comes uh, in two ways. One, it comes from both the people and the process uh, that are overseeing this, namely the people at the FDA and the processes that the FDA uh, engages in. The FDA uh, is blessed, we're blessed as a nation to having an amazing collection of incredibly dedicated public servants who are quite expert, uh, quite committed, uh, and quite experienced. And they have, if you might, since I'm down here in Texas, this is not their first rodeo. And so they are really providing almost uh, around the clock attention, bringing all of their resources to bear, and we can trust in them. Uh, they are committed public servants who put science before everything else. They are not politically influenced or motivated. Uh, they are there to serve the American people. And their processes are well-defined. And I should point out that, if Pe Peggy may have mentioned, that although we think of this uh, from the outside, that suddenly a vaccine manufacturer is going to arrive at the FDA with data regarding their clinical trials and that the FDA will then uh, evaluate and act upon that data, that is actually only a very small part of the process. This is a process in which the FDA is engaged in the total life cycle of these products. So FDA's engagement in this vaccine development begins at the very outset when they are being developed in laboratories, in, 
in experimental systems. And then when they go on to laboratory experiments with animals, uh, so long before these vaccines ever come into contact with a human being, the FDA has been engaged in substantial oversight with regard to the scientific foundations upon which uh, these vaccines are, are predicated and being developed. And so all that preclinical data is a part of the, the process. And then, of course, there is the examination of the clinical data. And you know that uh, this clinical data is extensive. It's gone through multiple phases of its evaluation from what we describe as phase one, uh, when it's really being looked at from the point of view of, is it safe? And then in phase two, when it's a determination of, is it effective? And then in very large phase three trials, which are occurring as we speak with at least five uh, very promising vaccines, those phase three trials with literally tens of thousands of patients, some trials with one vaccine, including up to 60,000 patients, where they randomize between a placebo injection, if you will, salt water, versus the vaccine itself. So there's a very critical assessment of does it work? And in fact, how well does it work? And one of the wonderful parts of this storyline, as you are all well aware, is that these first few vaccines which have come out of phase three trials are showing exceptionally good results. The process doesn't even end there. And there will be an extensive post-market um, a, pro a process of observation, evaluation, and continued assessment of data as it continues to be gathered in larger real-world populations. This is critically important for a number of reasons. Even if the vaccines are approved for emergency use uh, so that they are available for uh, purposes of public health, their study will go on. It'll go on in ways, for example, to determine how well does it work in various subsets of the population? How well does it work in elderly patients versus how well does this vaccine work in perhaps pediatric patients? The other piece of information is, is the effect of the vaccine lasting? Will there be an ongoing protection that would go on for months or perhaps years? And you're aware in your own experience that you get a smallpox vaccination when you're young and it lasts for your entire life. You get a tetanus shot at some point and that lasts maybe seven, eight years and you need a little booster. And then flu, you have to get that vaccine every year. We don't know what this storyline will be like. Hopefully it'll be a very prolonged and protracted um, immunity and ability for the body to recognize and respond to any subsequent emergence of the, of the virus. So uh, the point of the story is simply that the engagement is intensive, it's ongoing, it will be consistent, and as new information continues to emerge, the FDA will modify and change its regulatory decision, particularly with regard to what we describe as the label. And so I think trust uh, for the American public is a concern, but it should not be an issue because I think there's ample justification for why we should be looking forward to having access to a vaccine as soon as one becomes available for each of us. That brings us to the question of distribution, which I know you wanted to touch upon. The distribution, frankly, has probably three components to it. It's process, or I should say policy. Um, quite politics and economics. So there's a limited supply of a vaccine that will be coming available as the vaccine manufacturers are approved and as they're able to deliver uh, certain uh, aliquots of, of their vaccine. The first blush of that is a policy decision. And you know that the Center for Disease Control and uh, the Institute of Medicine have been looking at a process that would be ethical and uh, equitable. And that's emerging as a kind of uh, approach to high risk 
will be the first and foremost priority and the high risk itself has uh, various prioritizations within it. Healthcare workers, those who are at extremely uh, significant risk for severe morbidity and mortality, namely those who are aged and also have comorbidities. And then it will continue down through the rest of uh, stratification till we get to the point where hopefully in a year we have had sufficient number of doses available and a wide enough network of distribution that every U.S. citizen who wishes to be vaccinated will have access to a vaccine. The first scenario of the rollout will be to have states take responsibility and control for the distribution of the vaccine in their own uh, particular jurisdictions. And hopefully the distribution will be equitable across those various uh, states and territories. And then from there, there will be distribution according to the infrastructure that's put in place. A great deal of work has been done through warp speed and working uh, to create a distribution system. And it's important to realize that that distribution system not only will involve the availability of the vaccine, but it also has to have available to it all of the ancillary uh, parts and pieces of vaccine administration, including the paperwork. And so it's extremely important as, as the vaccines are rolled out that we have a registry, that we are able to know who received what vaccine. There's going to be need, especially for the first two coming out, to have a second shot. Uh, and that can occur anywhere between three weeks or four weeks, depending upon the particular vaccine. And it's important to make sure that that tracking is occurring because uh, without it, we will not have an adequate way of knowing whether we've sufficiently addressed the public health problem. The other side of the coin is that, as I indicated earlier, a registry is extremely important because the FDA is going to require follow-up. There are many open-ended questions that will have to be answered, not only about a specific vaccine, but from a public health standpoint, it's a question of knowing uh, which vaccine perhaps is working the best and under what circumstances is it working the best so that in the next iteration, we'll be able to know where our wisest investment will be with regard to making sure that the public's having access to the very most effective and safest of all of the vaccines. There are probably only over 300 vaccines being developed globally. We are fortunate in this country to have five that are well into phase three and two of whom have already submitted applications for emergency use. But there will be others behind that. So the science and the opportunity to gather data must continue. I mentioned politics because um, there are priorities that each country, each jurisdiction is going to want to have access to uh, vaccines, and that brings an economic uh, issue into play. It's re perhaps regrettable on a global level, but it's a reality that uh, the well-developed and, and uh, countries like the United States, Canada, Japan, have the financial wherewithal that we've purchased, uh, pre-purchased, more than enough vaccine to cover over 100% of our population. A, a place like India, uh, where financial uh, opportunities are obviously um, much less opportune, um, they've only been able to purchase pre-purchase vaccine that will cover, I believe, about only 13% of their population, in spite of the fact that their burden of this virus is, is quite extensive. So it does bring in um, jurisdictional priorities. It's just country to country. Uh, you know that some countries were even concerned about putting in place export bans so that they would be certain that companies would not ship all the vaccine to another country and they would not have anything for their own citizens. Those things, I think, are well worked out, but uh, the economics is still an issue. We should not have a problem by the end of 2021 in this country. Uh, and the first few months of 
2021, uh, we'll uh, continuously see rollouts of, of, of more and more availability. I believe we're thinking that um, we'll have about 40 million doses uh, by the end of December, uh, which won't cover all of our healthcare workers, uh, but it's a, it's a first start. So with that in mind, uh, looking at some of the issues with regard to trust, with regard to the FDA uh, processes and with our distribution, I'm going to, as I said, in order to not uh, simply give a lecture and reiterate many things that maybe Peggy has already talked about, uh, most use your time um, effectively by responding to questions you might have and blanks I may need to fill in. Thank you, uh, Dr. Von Eschenbach. Uh, though your lecture was uh, was fairly interesting from my perspective, I sure certainly learned uh, a lot. Um, um, we've got uh, five or six questions on tap. Let me start off uh, with the first one, and then we'll go to Jim Hope, uh, Tom McInerney, and David Roscoe. Um, first question, Annette, is, is it your expectation that uh, in a week or so, the FDA will approve the two vaccines for emergency use. That's one. And then related to that, do they need to have another approval for it to be used on a, a wider spread basis? Yes. I'm, so I, I'm not going to second guess the agency because I, I can't. There is an advisory committee that will be looking at the data um, and giving them an independent assessment. They are in the process as we speak of uh, going through all of that clinical data from uh, thousands and thousands of patients uh, and going through it with a fine tooth comb. They're in communication with the uh, sponsor, the company. So should there be issues or questions uh, about methodologies? And these are, to be candid, complex uh, clinical trials. Uh, the, you've heard about some of that complexity, even with regard to some of the data that's already been uh, made available, where, for example, with one vaccine, there was a difference in the first dose, uh, only being half of what was expected. And then the second dose was at the full dose. So those nuances, those little intricacies of data analytics and data assessment will, will be something that is undergoing extensive uh, scrutiny. I think from what we've been presented publicly, the very fact that these vaccines have been so effective uh, in being able to mitigate disease in over 90% of patients who are vaccinated, um, that's very compelling. And I think I would be, although I can't speak for or predict the FDA's action, I would be quite surprised if they do not issue emergency use authorization for these first two vaccines that are being assessed as we speak. Now, that means that the vaccines are able to be delivered under these circumstances, and they must continue to gather data, uh, continue to refine the information. As I indicated, some of that would have to do with subset analysis. Some of it would have to do with how long the the uh, immune response persists, how high the uh, titers of neutralizing antibodies uh, reach. And that comes into play then for their final approval in which they have a full labeling indication and they are then widely um, uh, available in the marketplace. Great, thank you. Uh, Jim? Uh, thank you, doctor. Thank you very much. That was uh, that was very interesting. Um, uh, I have a question that may be more legal than it is medical, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway. And that is, and that is, what do you um, uh, what do you understand, or what do you think can be done to compel people to uh, to to uh, to take the vaccination? I know, for example, in many schools, if 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 uh, if kids haven't had haven't had certain inoculations, they uh, they can't come to school. Uh, I've heard people talking about maybe a a national certificate or whatever that people would have to show to be able to go to a restaurant or go to a football game or whatever. Uh, 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 what do you understand or what do you think are, are the possibilities as far as, as compulsion of people that way? 
That's a, that's a question I do not believe I actually have an answer for, except to say I don't think compulsion works. Um, I know that, for example, with human papillomavirus, when we knew that this could really completely eliminate cervical cancer and um, penile cancer because of that being caused by human papilloma virus strains, uh, attempts at, at requiring that to be mandatory in schools was met with a substantial amount of resistance, such that I think from a, if not a legal standpoint, uh, which I can't speak to, I think from a public perception and um, political perspective, I, I don't see the compelling individuals and mandate, mandating that they get vaccinated is going to be an option. I think the more opportune um, approach is the one that I sort of tried to address, and that is how can we reestablish trust? How can we negate what are some of the unreasonable and unrealistic fears? And if we can mitigate enough of that and get enough of the population uh, immunized, you wind up with what's being described in other ways as herd immunity in that even if not everyone gets vaccinated, your entire population will be protected because there just simply won't be uh, the opportunity for transmission. So I don't think we have to beat everyone in the submission. I think we just have to convince a critical mass of wise and responsible Americans that this and a vaccine is in their best interest. And the, the other, I don't want to belabor it, but one of the taglines I use is, look, there are only two ways that you can protect yourself against this virus. I mean, you, you have to become immune to it. And there are only two ways you can become immune to it. One is you can get vaccinated, and that will make you immune to it. Or you can get the virus itself and hope that you live and survive and develop some immunity. Uh, I think I'd much rather take my chances with the vaccine than this virus. This is a vicious virus. It isn't just a respiratory virus. It is attacking the endothelium, the lining of blood vessels, and creating brain damage, heart damage, kidney damage. Um, it is attacking the immune system and producing what we see as post-viral uh, syndromes where people are developing neurologic problems. Um, it's creating infarcts in the brain. It is a dangerous virus. You don't want it. You really do want the vaccine. Great. Thanks, Jim. Hey, I was remiss by uh, not asking uh, that when you ask a question of Dr. Von Eschenbach, if you would let everybody know uh, where you're from. Many of us know Jim and know he's in Dallas. Uh, so let's go to Tom McInerney. Thank you very much. Jim with Financial. I'm in Richmond, Virginia, and we have a large long-term care insurance business. So obviously, a lot of our clients' customers have been in nursing homes and been affected by it. But my question is, are, are you or others like you making these uh, presentations to all the governors and their teams? Uh, you, you know, I, I think all the governors should be on the same page in uh, making the, the, the points you just made that, you know, these pharmaceutical companies have done an outstanding job, you know, take them out of the political side. They've just done a great job. And these are very effective uh, vaccines and people should take them. And it seems like governors sh should be encouraging and some of them aren't really helping. So I don't know. So the question is, are, do you know if the governors, some of whom have been more negative, are getting turned around by presentations like what, what you may be doing? I haven't been a part of any of those conversations with regard to governors or, or leaders in the state and local arenas. I do. I am aware that Operation Warp Speed and the folks there and a lot of the work that's been done by um, the task force has attempted uh, to really engage the, the local level primarily. Um, so I haven't been a part of it, but I, I think there are some people who refuse to be convinced for whatever reasons. Um, and that's unfortunate because it's, yeah. it's their citizens that pay the price. But, but I think you're a very effective uh, spokesperson. And maybe Nancy and the team, we can encourage governors maybe to get on a no-label Zoom uh, and listen, if, you know, or some other mechanism. Because I, 
you know, I, I, it's pretty impressive what's been done. And I, I, it would be a shame. I mean, it is political and it's all, you know, but to me, Trump's out. So forget about him and, and let's, let's not make this political and have people like you are, you know, the experts are more independent. You're not politicians yourself to, to make the case. Well, I'd be happy to do that. And I think the point you made coming at it from um, your perspective, my biggest fear about this virus is what we're going to be left with afterwards. The, the long caller syndrome and the way this virus is creating a chronic disease is frightening. And he, the numbers vary, and we're working very hard through the Reagan-Udall Foundation working directly with the FDA to really be able to assess what's happening in the real world with regard to post-COVID. Um, we're seeing immunologic uh, effects. We're seeing uh, cardiovascular effects. Uh, we're seeing um, neurologic effects. And, and that's going to create chronic illness that's going to be both a public health burden as well as a financial burden. And um, even if we, the numbers vary, but it's up to 50, 60% of patients who recover from the virus seem to have some prolonged um, after effects that goes on for weeks to months, fatigue and brain fog uh, being probably uh, the most common. Is, uh, but we're seeing other problems that are persisting even longer than that. And I have some real concerns about what that's going to mean for us from a public health standpoint. And so if governors are thinking about, oh, well, you know, we'll get over this once this virus goes away, we're, we'll be fine. Not, not so. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I would say, just as a follow-up, and I'll let others ask questions, you know, we, we're the largest long-term care insurer in the world. We have 1.1 million U.S. long-term care clients. We have 50,000 of those 1.1 are on claim. Uh, and uh, what we're seeing is no question in the last six months, the debt, the 50,000, some, some are getting care in the home. Uh, a lot of our patients are severe dementia, Alzheimer's, and strokes, those kinds of things. But we are seeing those customers of, of ours who are on claim in nursing homes, assisted living facilities that are 80 and over, and that's most of them have, a, as we're all seeing, extremely high death rate, which is really doing a lot of damage to the families, particularly, you know, who are also part of our customer base who are, you know, not only losing loved ones to death, but they can't even be there when they die. I, I just think it's, uh, it's really sad that uh, there, we aren't using all the capabilities we have, including these pharmaceuticals to, you know, try to get this behind us as best we can. Great. Thanks, Tom. Uh, David Roscoe. Uh, yes, uh, I'm David Roscoe. I'm in Summit, New Jersey. Um, and uh, my question was partially answered in your address, which, by the way, I thought was spectacular, really very information rich. And it has to do with the international distribution of the vaccine, uh, and particularly from the companies that are going to be the major suppliers to the U.S. My question is, who gets to decide how much of those vaccines, particularly in the early days, go overseas? And uh, and I'm just wondering about the process of making that decision. Is that a corporate decision? Does CDC make it? Uh, how does it work? Uh, are there international organizations, et cetera? Thank you. Yeah. I, I think we're working the answer to that question out in real time. Um, I think it starts with the companies themselves. Uh, who have the proprietary rights. It's a process of negotiation with uh, the countries and the markets in which they operate globally or, or, and nationally. Uh, and what's occurred primarily is to drive that has been the economic piece, the, the ability for some countries to jump ahead and pre-purchase. Um, so uh, some of the data I have is the, uh, the EU has... Uh, a purchased, pre-purchased 700 million doses. The United States, 700 million, and it varies. Um, in the e EU, Pfizer um, sold 300 million. AstraZeneca pledged 400 million doses. 
Um, those numbers are a little bit different in the U.S. with Pfizer at 100 million, Moderna at 100 million, AstraZeneca at 500 million. Uh, India has pre-purchased this 500 million uh, for their incredible population. Uh, so even less than what we've purchased. And it goes on from there. So I think part of it has been uh, an economic uh, process of, uh, of being able to prepay and buy ahead of time. I think part of it has been, uh, as I said, political in the sense that if you do business in our country um, and you uh, expect to serve our citizens, then we expect you to be providing uh, for them. And there's been some work around that with regard to pricing, for, for example. And, um, and then I think it really then comes down to the issue of the ethics and morality of yes. how we care for each other. And, uh, and, that, and one of the things about a pandemic is it doesn't really care whether we're you know, Americans or whether we're Japanese. It's going to kill all of us. Uh, so we all should be looking out for each other and deal with this globally. Whether the WHO is effective at me mediating or uh, you know, being able to help with that is another question. But uh, I think it starts with the companies. And they've been quite responsible, I, I believe. Thank you. Great. Thank you, David. Uh, Patricia Chadwick, could you go next? Thank you. I'm in uh, Greenwich, Connecticut. And I think my question is a little bit of follow-on to, to David Roscoe's, but it's really more about the administration of the, of the vaccine. There was a fascinating piece this morning on CNN, which was showing construction going on in Germany all over the country. It was just showing one, but they said this was being done hundreds and hundreds of times over, which was the facility that would allow people to come in remaining separated from each other so that in administering the, the vaccine, they wouldn't be actually spreading um, the virus. And, and it was incredibly scientifically and thoughtfully done, determining how much time they would spend, you know, getting their shirt off and then getting in and getting, you know, the needle and then going and sitting for 15 minutes to make sure that they didn't have a reaction. One came away thinking, and now you've told us that 700 million doses have been bought by the EU, but one came away thinking Germany has ordained that every person in Germany is going to get this vaccine and Germany will not have the virus whenever the time comes that they've delivered all that. Is that something that you think would be appropriate for the states or somehow the federal government to become involved with to make an efficacious application of the vaccine to everyone? You know, I think there's, a, you raised a number of important points. I think there's a lot of work that's being done and, and has been done in getting the logistics right uh, at ground, ground zero and where those distribution uh, centers can be set up where there's experience in giving vaccines. We're, we're kind of fortunate in that in this country we have, uh, you know, chains like um, CVS and Walgreens that are, used to giving vaccines for flu, et cetera. Um, well, now what they may not have, though, is they may not have the other part of the infrastructure. For example, one of the vaccines requires a very special handling and being kept at uh, extraordinarily low temperatures with freezers. So you've now got to match, do we have uh, experience and capability at, at, the, at ground zero and do we have the right equipment and infrastructure in place? And how can we get that accomplished by uh, distributing freezers, et cetera? So I think you're going to see a mix between a community-based um, infrastructure uh, where the vaccine itself is much more simplistic in handling and administration. And then where the more complicated handling um, administration is required, that may wind up in um, medical centers that are better equipped with that infrastructure. And then it's a question of directing the populations at risk to get to the right place for the right reason. Um, I think 
to mimic what Germany's done would be difficult to do across the entire spectrum. But I do think that there's opportunity to go back to the issue of the role for governors and states and locales to work aggressively to put that kind of, uh, of, a, of an infrastructure and an operational plan in place so that um, it may be a little heterogeneous, but at least we should have standards of excellence. Yeah, and I, just, just speaking for Genworth, I would assume most large Fortune 500 companies like Genworth, we, we have physicians and nurses on staff. We give regular flu vaccines. You know, we starting up again November 1st to all employees. They can either come into the clinics, uh, uh, you know, administered by people who have been doing it for years and years. We also set up a drive-by this time because of COVID-19, and, and we plan, we, we do have the freezers on those things. I think most large companies would. And we're either going to have people come in or you can actually do the drive through and get both a COVID vaccine and a regular flu shot, you know, depending on what, what you need. I, I would expect most big companies will handle it that way. Yeah. Great. So next up, we've got uh, Eric Turner and then uh, Matt D'Onofrio. Steve. Hi, thank you, uh, Eric Chern. I'm in uh, Chicago. Uh, I, uh, I appreciate uh, everything you shared. It was very interesting. Uh, my question is, how much do we really know about the long-term risks that the vaccine might pose? Uh, in particular, not, not so much from a vaccine perspective itself, but uh, given everything you shared even about uh, some of the ways that the virus is very insidious and, and causing neurological issues and, and you know, pulmonary issues and other, how do we know in the various methods of producing these vaccines, some of them with messenger RNA and whatnot, how do we how do we establish what the long-term risks could be from, from inoculation? Yeah. yeah, that's a critically important question and why I feel so strongly about this whole issue of big data and real-world evidence. And going back, you know, to uh, the avian influenza story, one of the other things that we were missing in 2005 is we didn't have the information technologies infrastructure that we have today. Uh, we didn't have the electronic medical records uh, to the degree that we have them today. We didn't have the sophisticated ability to um, get, ag acquire, aggregate, and, and analyze data. So one of the things that has to be uh, emphasized and put in place as we think about combating this, this pandemic is it's fine to have the vaccine. It's going to be even more critically important to have the data. And that data is going to have to be longitudinal over time. So it's more than a registry. It's more than uh, just simply distributing the vaccine. We're going to have to know what happens. There are a lot of important questions that you're raising. These are different and technologies. They work in different ways as far as how they stimulate the body's immune system. And at the risk of, of giving a lecture, I... Think of it this way. There, when you get exposed, the body has two components to its immune system. One is based on what we call T cells, and the other is B cells. The B cell lymphocytes are the ones that make the antibody. We have to know, will the B cells make enough antibody? Will the levels go up in your bloodstream high enough? And not only will the antibody tighter be high, but is it the right kind of antibody? Is it a neutralizing antibody, which means once it binds to the virus, it actually kills it or neutralizes it? We need to know that. Now, the preliminary studies are very optimistic along those lines in that the antibody titers appear to be high uh, and they appear to be neutralizing, but we don't yet know how sustained they're going to be and we don't yet know whether every population is going to respond equally to that uh, vaccination. The other side of the coin is, um, do, will the different uh, technologies, methodologies, uh, wind up being preferable or superior, both in efficacy and maybe even in terms of less discomfort or and certainly with uh, regard to safety? I think it's also important um, that we have data so that we understand whether we're going to have to repeat a vaccine or get a booster 
in a year um, or two years or whatever is necessary because this virus is not going to go away. It'll, it'll die down, but it, it, there's no reason to think it's going to disappear. And it could, it could behave more like flu in that it's seasonal and comes back uh, as opposed to maybe something like, um, you know, polio where once we eradicate it, it's eradicated. So we don't yet know that. And, and I think we need to make an investment in very sophisticated data systems we need that involve um, the infrastructure of our healthcare system, but I also think we even have to have the opportunity for patient reported outcomes. We have lots of opportunities now where we can directly assess and access information from patients that's, that's thoughtful and reliable. So I want to see that kind of put in place to answer your important question is, what will we know a year from now about this virus and these vaccines? Great, thank you. Uh, so after Matt, we've got John Grilos and then uh, Bruce uh, Falter. Go ahead, Matt. Thanks much, and thanks for the great uh, lecture and dialogue. I'm calling from Chicago, Illinois as well, from the Bronner Group. Um, we've been advising state and local governments on their COVID-19 response, and you've given a lot of excellent recommendations for, you know, what things they should be doing now and long-term to um, maximize their effectiveness of vaccine distribution. Specifically, could you elaborate on how, you know, county and local governments beneath the state can better align themselves with those uh, larger state and federal entities, both in the short term and then in this long-term monitoring and tracking? Thank you. I think that, first of all, there's uh, the registry issue, uh, so that as vaccines are delivered, there there has to be um, the ability to create that registry, which gets reported up to the state health um, authorities, starting at the community level and then going back up to a central repository. So I think cooperation, collaboration, and being quite fastidious about that is is one important part of that uh, effort. I, I think there needs to be, um, if you will, aggressive uh, participation in the equitable distribution. And what do I mean by that? Within any community, there are going to be um, health centers that are perhaps more advantaged than maybe community clinics in underserved uh, areas that don't necessarily have the same degree of funding and the same degree of sophistication. Uh, and those are going to have to be cared for and looked after. And I think that's a community responsibility and a local community that knows and understands their own healthcare infrastructure should be the ones that are modulating that equitable um, approach and sharing of resources and sharing of, of expertise so that all citizens benefit. Uh, I think the community also has an important role in communication. Um, and we talk about trust and we talk about alleviating people's fears and misperceptions and misconceptions. I, I think that happens really best at the community level. Um, and I would hope that there's be as much of a public relations uh, approach to this in encouraging and messaging and getting uh, citizens to comply um, as much as there is concern about uh, where the uh, vaccine and the costs are going to be uh, covered. Great, thanks. Uh, John, you're next. I think you answered one of them. Thank you very much, Doctor. The, um, um, the only one of the two viruses, or one of the two vaccines need to be kept very cold, I guess. Not both of them. And, then, and my other question was, why, two, why does it take two inoculations? It's just a property of the way in which the immune system responds so that it needs a boost uh, after its initial encounter with the, with the virus. And as it goes back to the T-cell, B-cell story I was beginning to tell where the B-cell makes the antibody, but it's the T-cell that recognizes the antigen. So when you first get exposed, it's the T cell that recognizes the, and the antigens and starts sending messages to other parts of the immune system 
as to what they're supposed to do. So some parts of it are supposed to start making antibody. Some parts of the immune system are supposed to develop memory so that if we ever see that antigen again, uh, we'll recognize it immediately as a bad actor and have a rapid response as opposed to the slower response. So in this first blush, we're, we're in the slower part of the response and we need that, that second boost. Now, that's based on the technology as to how the antigen is getting presented and processed. Some of the vaccines that are underway and are in the process of uh, phase three trials and will come for um, FDA approval soon only require one dose because the way they're designed, the body will react and respond uh, initially without the need for that second boost within a matter of a couple weeks. Thank you. Uh, Butch, you're next. Hi, I'm Butch Felser. I'm in Lake Bluff, Illinois. Doctor, how much of a geopolitical risk to the United States do you see some unfriendly actor who has access to huge amounts of vaccine donating it to a second or third world country? I, I'm sorry, Butch. I'm not sure I understood that. How much of a geopolitical risk would be associated with distribution? No, you were talking about India earlier, not being able yeah. to buy enough vaccine. Oh, I see. What would happen if a country who has developed a vaccine, who is unfriendly to the United States, uh, were to donate it to, uh, to that second or third world country? As they have been um, generally approaching is this in other areas, they're going to make friends, whether it's in India or whether it's in Africa. That's a part of a global um, strategy on the part of some countries that are not our friends. Thank you. So we have to compete for the goodwill of those who are less privileged uh, in that setting. Next up, we've got Ian Bund. Doctor, uh, thank you. I, I had uh, two questions. The first one was, I, I understand the Chinese provided the sequencing of the virus back at the beginning of the year. And uh, I'm curious, uh, to your knowledge, you know, if each of the companies uh, developing the vac vaccines uh, did their own sequencing or otherwise verified the uh, sequencing provided? I, I don't have an e explicit answer to what each company did, but the, but the virus has been sequenced multiple times since that first um, disclosure. So there have been um, numerous uh, institutions and opportunities for uh, continuously surveying the genetic makeup of the virus, particularly from the point of view of making sure there aren't changes or an evolution in the genome that's going to influence uh, whether we're going to have the right, you know, vaccine or the right strategy. So I, I think that the issue of confirmation of the genetic makeup of this vaccine or, or genetic makeup of this virus has been assured multiple times over beyond just that first report out of China. Thank you. Uh, the second question is, uh, Inherently, the vaccines business uh, has be, been a difficult and generally unprofitable one with uh, all sorts of residual lawsuits. Uh, what's going to happen this time around uh, to make this a sustainable business that uh, these manufacturers uh, will stay with and we will see ongoing research to to sustain and improve the vaccines? I think there are a couple of answers to that. First of all, I mean, the legal um, relief of indemnification has been a really important part of that story uh, so that we um, protect uh, the vaccine manufacturers from uh, inappropriate risk and unnecessary uh, risk uh, the second part of it is I think that the, the fact that the science has evolved has placed vaccines into a much larger opportunity. 
So it's no longer simply a vaccine for infectious disease. It, it's a vaccine for other conditions, including perhaps seeing vaccines for cancer, seeing vaccines mm -hmm. for um, one day Alzheimer's. Um, so I think vaccination itself or the idea of modulating the body's immune system in a, in a way that enhances its ability to protect us from something that's going awry is, I think, a, a, a business proposition that's now quite attractive to the industry today compared to what it might have been 10, 15 years ago. And I think it's only going to get even more attractive as time goes on and as the science continues to evolve, especially around the, the techniques that we've seen in vaccine development. Those genetic manipulations and those genetic techniques are going to be applicable um, in a variety of other, other ways. So I, I think it's a, it's a growing opportunity that won't, won't regress. It'll only continue, I think, to, to evolve. All right, our Thank last you. question is going to come from Glenn uh, Kreblin. Hi, doctor. Thank you for your time. I, I think you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I was curious as to when we might see some of the factors of differentiation among the vaccines. You touched on the term uh, B cells, and my understanding is there's quite a big difference uh, away from just the antibody production. Um, so I was wondering if you can comment on that. When, when, when we might see some uh, data on this. That's, a, that's a, a question that's a little challenging for me because I, I, I don't believe we're going to get that information solely from the sponsors, from the companies. Um, I think it's going to be a requirement for an agency like the CDC and the FDA to really engage in promoting the kind of real-world evidence that's going to allow us to have not only insights into a specific vac vaccine, but be able to see across those um, vaccines. I, simply put, I don't think Moderna and Pfizer are going to sponsor a head-to-head -head trial to compare their vaccines against each other to see which one's best. I just don't think that's going to happen. And yet we need that, that information. So we're going to have to get it um, through a different strategy and a different mechanism. How long will it take us to, to be develop the insights? I think that will be occurring in real time over the next uh, 12 to 18 months, month by month. The knowledge will just continue to evolve and expand and we will I, I would say have the kind of insights you're asking for in that, in that period of a year to a year and a half. The second question I had was given this is a competitive or a global race or uh, to find a cure or vaccine um, does the U.S. recognize uh, any other jurisdiction or any other country that may approve a vaccine that could be distributed or sold in the United States? Yes, and there's certainly the FDA will welcome global data or data that's emerging from other um, uh, jurisdictions. Uh, there is a, a substantial amount of cooperation that goes on among the regulatory agencies. They, um, they maintain sovereignty uh, so that the FDA is not going to simply accept, nor will they ex simply accept, uh, an approval by another uh, regulatory entity. But they will share data. They will uh, communicate and cooperate. And the data itself is able to be uh, transposed from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So uh, much of the data, for example, that the FDA is looking at right now, uh, particularly one um, the, the one that was in, beginning to be in question, uh, the AstraZeneca Oxford uh, vaccine, part of that data is from the UK, part of it's from Brazil, and the, Astra, and the US data is still yet to be um, publicly disclosed. But those are three different international 
sources of data upon which the FDA will make a decision. Thank you. Great. Great. Thank you, uh, Dr. Von Eschenbach, for your uh, presentation and, and uh, being uh, very patient and thoughtful in terms of the answer oh, to our question. Thank you. No, again. I'm very honored to be asked. Thank you very no, much. I appreciate hope it. it was of some help. It, it very much was. And I just want to remind everybody in the call that today the Problem Solvers Caucus and our uh, Senate partners held a press conference announcing the bipartisan, bicameral uh, COVID. 19 relief proposal and and I just it's just such a great reminder and reflection of the vision of uh, our governing block uh, and and the importance that that the problem solvers caucus and our Senate partners can play uh, uh, with the smaller margins that we're going to see in the next Congress so thank you very much for your time we look forward to see everybody in our next call. Dr. Von Eschenbach marvels at the speed at which COVID-19 vaccines were created. Where it could previously take 15 years to develop a vaccine, these came in less than a year. It was possible thanks to tremendous scientific advances, as well as several regulatory changes that cleared the way for these treatments to come to market faster. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.